0: once we understand the impact, we want to know how we make sense of it. Um, and, and this is where we want to combat the idea that depression and anxiety is becoming who I am. And in some ways, this may be the darkest part of our journey. Uh, because it's where, uh, it's where our suffering finds words. And I think it's really important for us to be able to differentiate those things that are real from those things that are true. And that I, I don't think that's just some kind of little semantic counselor word game. I think there is a very important difference between those things that are real and those things that are true. And so let me use an illustration. Let's go back to the child who's afraid to learn how to swim. Okay? So we got my son in the pool, afraid to swim. Is the fear real? Yes! That's why he is grabbing me like a spider monkey parathon. Uh, I mean, it just, he is not going to let go. That is a real experience. Okay? It's wrapped up in a story of drowning. Is it true? No. Now, there are lots of things that, that the little guy could look at and, and just kind of, because my little guy, he's kind of no nonsense. He'd look at it, tell you like he's not, uh, listen, I don't know how to swim. This water is deeper than I am tall. When kids who get into water that is deeper than they are tall and they don't know how to swim, they drown. And and that's how my little boy would go about this. And that's something that we have to unscript. Now that story is neglecting some very important elements. The character of the parent. The presence of the parent. The ability of my boy to learn. The danger of the pool. How much fun swimming is going to be once you learn to do it. When those things become part of the story, doesn't mean it's not scary. Is it scary to learn how to swim? Yeah! It just means the drowning narrative comes to the background and other things come to the foreground. That's what we see here uh, in this extended quote from uh, uh, Albers and Friends. They say meaning making is at the heart of the human experience. Uh, Narrative theory assumes that people um, make meaning in their lives through stories. In other words, we provide narrative links between events in our lives. That is, we story them in order to make sense of them. Yet only a small percentage of our life experiences get storied. Most of them get lost and obscured by uh, the dominant storylines in our life. Non-productive anxiety is generated when the meaning we make out of the events in our lives create a sense of threat inherent in our future. Other non-threatening storylines have been obscured uh, by the anxiety storyline. People who struggle with various kinds of troubling anxiety tend to make meaning along the storyline that predicts more trouble, a loss of control, or a grave risk. So again, what's my little dude doing when we're in the pool learning to swim? The drowning storyline is right up here in front, and the idea that this is my loving father who's teaching me to do something that's going to be fun and I'm going to enjoy with my friends for the rest of my life comes way back here. What are we doing in this step? We are looking at those storylines that get right up here in our face and makes everything else hard to see. Um, and we want to do that uh, through a question. And the question will be, what is my depression or anxiety saying? That is, what does it mean? What does it reveal? What does it want? And that's, a, that's an awkward question. Um, but I think it helps us see that sense of story uh, that begins to wrap itself around the experience. There's ten things here. I don't think these are the only ten, but it's to give you a sampling of the kinds of storylines that aren't necessarily completely false. Again, it, there's an aspect where we say to my, little, my son, you know, learning to swim is scary. Uh, I, I kind of want him to be afraid of the water. Uh, if I were the kind of parent who just threw him into the pool like they do in Kentucky where I grew up and go, come here! Uh, that's not good. Um, they don't do that in 47 states now. It, um, and so it's not as if these things are completely false. But they are the kinds of things that become more dominant than they warrant. And so what are some of them? I am guilty or ashamed. Now, there's a sense in which, you know, guilt, we could say that could be true guilt. Depression and anxiety may reveal things in my beliefs and values and behaviors that I truly need to repent of and forsake, and if I did that, my depression and anxiety would alleviate. If that's true, uh, then the seminar that we do from a personal responsibility paradigm would be the more appropriate approach to take. Uh, but there's other times when our When our guilt is false. uh, Where the expectations that we have of ourselves, the way that we're making meaning of it, that gives this sense of guilt, does not fit. And then shame. Uh, Oftentimes, uh, things like abuse, where we feel like damaged goods, where we feel like a particular experience that we had no control over, marred us. Um then that is a form of shame that uh, our depression and anxiety may be saying, I feel shame, I feel unclean, I feel marked, I feel outcast because of that. And that's the story that is uh, being revealed by our depression and anxiety. Or it may say, I'm afraid. Uh, the, The image that I get of this is just imagine... If your entire life was lived with the theme music to Jaws playing in the background. Stop it! I mean how that, that is this theme of fear playing in the background. And there's times when it would drive us to the point that we were just on edge, and at times we'd be so exhausted by it. Or maybe it's not the Jaws theme music. Maybe it's Eye of the Tiger, you know, Rocky style. You know, and, and it's, it's gearing up for a fight. And we always feel like we're gearing up for this challenge that's coming. It's not as hopeless as Jaws. Um, but we can't live, you know, forever getting ready for Mr. T. Um, and again, I like Welch here. He says, if I imagine the worst. I will be prepared for it. Worry is looking for control. Going one step further to track this message back to its origin, there is an entire worldview, or we would say story, implicit uh, in some worry. Not all worry, some worry. It cries out about an ultimate aloneness. Again, that idea that God, parent, is absent. There is no one who can really help. No one can rescue. No one is really looking out for you. Do you hear the story? You are an orphan in a chaotic universe that operates according to chance. Who wouldn't be worried given such a view of reality? When we don't know the true God, or at least when His character becomes distorted in the story that we're living, we assume that He is like us, which is a terrifying thought. And here's a few more storylines that have to do with the kind of desires that we have. I need something. This is what I call the plague of the word enough. You can put the word enough in any sentence and it's just miserable. Have you prayed enough? Pastor jerk, hashtag. Um... Do you spend enough time with your spouse or your kids? Have you given enough time to your studies? Are you thinking enough about the future and what you ought to do about it? You put enough in any sentence and it just becomes nasty. Um, and, And if we think that kind of way, there is always something that is needed. And sure, are there some of those things we should think more about? Yeah, it doesn't mean the story is altogether false. It just means at times it gets so much up in our face we can't see anything else. Or another aspect that desires can play in that kind of story is I must avoid something. And here's the problem with this story. When, we're, when the dominant theme of our life is what we're trying to avoid, all we can know is failure. If my life goal is not to experience something, I only know how close I am to that happening. Again, I'm a, I'm a baseball guy. You, you come to enough of these and you, get, you either love baseball or get sick of it one way or the other. But this is the way, for much of my athletic career, I played baseball. I played baseball not to strike out. Which meant, even when I got a hit... I was just worried about the next at bat because the goal of baseball was not what I was trying to do it was what I was trying to avoid and as much as I love the game it made it this kind of depressive love hate stressed out experience and a lot of us when that dominant theme of our life becomes what we have to avoid we do life that way or I, lo- I lost something You know, there's things that are important to us, and every season of life, those things kind of come and go, and that's just the natural part of the life cycle. But sometimes that sense of loss can become the dominant theme of our life. And part of what I want to point out here is that we can have legitimate, proportional desires and still experience depression and anxiety in a broken world. Now... There are times when the desires that we have grow so large uh, that they become idols and they become the meaning-giving center of our life. And we'll talk about that in the personal responsibility aspect. Uh, but right now, uh, my boys are 10 and 7. It is a wonderful season of life. I love it. And, and I can tell you, when this season of life passes, I'll be sad. It, and... and I, okay, maybe my kids are in idolatry. Um, you know, people see me coach. Sometimes they, they think that more than others. But, um, it, I don't think that necessarily has to be the case for me to go through a season of sadness when we move out of this precious season of life. Another storyline can be, I'm angry. Now, uh, anger says two things. Any anger, healthy, unhealthy, sinful, righteous, whatever, anger says two things. This is wrong, and it matters. Okay, that's what anger says. Anger always says, this is wrong, and it matters. When we do our Overcoming Anger seminar, and we talk about sinful anger, we say sinful anger says a third thing. This is wrong, and it matters more than you. And at that point, anger has crossed a line Where it has become sinful. Depressive anger that is morphed. Says a third thing. This is wrong. It matters. And I'm powerless. And it just sucks all the hope out of life. And I can't let go of the anger. But it doesn't drive me to energy. It just flattens me out. And that becomes the storyline of all of life. And it begins to... It's the way I make sense of everything. Um, uh, Catherine Green McCreet. uh, We haven't heard from her. We're going to hear from her more. Uh, Fascinating book. Uh, She writes out of her own experience and puts it into words really, really well. Uh, She's a liberal feminist, and so I didn't pick up her book expecting to enjoy it. Uh, You know, most of my friends are probably not liberal feminists. But if most liberal feminists wrote like Catherine Green McCreet, I would have more liberal feminist friends because I just think she does a really good job. Um, Now, she says, from a theological perspective, the most dangerous thing about mental illness is that it can lock us in on ourselves, convincing us that we are indeed our own and completely on our own, isolated in our distress. She goes on, ultimately though, I think the despair of mental illness itself has no meaning. Mental illness is the lack of meaning. Just as evil is the lack or privation of good. And I think that sets us up for these next two stories. One is, woe is me. Where the storyline of life is that I am forsaken. Um, uh, My guess, and again I've not talked to him so I don't know. uh, But my guess is, this is Satan's favorite uh, of all of the storylines. Because it begins to distance us from our se- source of hope. Like nothing else. When I can begin to see that. Or I begin to believe that I am forsaken. That God has abandoned me. Then that separates me from God. My source of hope. In a way that, that is just more powerful. Than any of these others. And then the next one is just I have no hope. And that's capturing that idea that she gives in the second half there of just meaninglessness. That life has become a non-story. Life is not going anywhere. It has no direction, no purpose, no meaning. It's just we live a certain number of days we're nothing but biology and then at some point we die and we go back to being dirt. Woo! Woo! <laughs> and so sometimes that becomes the story. Um, another one. I need to fit some stereotype of a quick fix. Uh, I think this is the therapeutic version of a get-rich-quick scheme. Um, And almost any time that you have a one-size-fits-all presentation on depression and anxiety, they're taking some stereotype that for some percentage of the population may fit or be true, and they're saying it works for everybody. But again, I think the word depression is just too big for that. Uh, And again, it goes from Poodle to Great Dane. The word is just, the semantic range is too large for stereotype quick fix. And the tenth, I know that my Redeemer is with me, and I will humbly wait for His deliverance. To some degree or another, that's you. You're here. If you're joining us on video, you have gone uh, through four videos. Yet, there is some sense in which this is a part of your story or you wouldn't be at this point in the journey. And this is what I would just say in the, in the course of my counseling. Many of the people that I've counseled who have struggled deeply with depression and anxiety, I have greatly admired. They have been people that I have viewed as heroes and examples because of the way that their faith could withstand the dark night of the soul in a way that was, if you'd allow me to say it, beautiful, uh, precious. Um, now, uh, you ask me, what do we do with these with these storylines? Uh, my, my goal would be that you would be able to do four things as you begin to see which of these stand out in your experience of depression and anxiety. One. It's just to articulate it. Don't let the story of your depression and anxiety be a bodiless ghost that just haunts every part of your life. Put it into words. Make it solid so that you can articulate it to somebody else and invite them into that experience and you're less alone with it. Honestly acknowledge the pain. Again, this goes back to that idea of not flailing in the water, but learning to swim. Okay, even if this story is not true, the emotions that I experience are real, and if it's real, it hurts. Um, Third, to be able to counter them with Scripture. At this point in the larger notebook, that in the front of your uh, listening guide there, you can see an email address where you can email Amy and get that if you want to go through this as a larger study. Um, It gives you some scripture passages where you can begin to go through and just say, what would counter these kinds of themes? At this stage in your journey, I don't think counter means obliterate. uh, Because these themes, are they're still going to be, I mean, most experiences is that we have to grapple with them before we can let them fade to the background. And then six, see how they can be replaced uh, with the gospel. Again, as we understand it and we begin to give our experience words in this way, we can begin to see how the themes of the gospel really do begin to impact our experience of depression and anxiety. I think Leslie Varenick uh, captures or culminates this step well. She says, To begin the process of learning how to be a happier person, we must see the deception of our internal storyline and replace it with the truth. It's interesting how our internal beliefs shapes what we see and don't see. When you begin to capture these themes and you see how it becomes the casing around your experience, you'll begin to notice how the story makes certain details come to the front and other details go to the back. And then as you have the freedom to choose whether that is the dominant storyline that you want to embrace, then, then your ability to influence letting other details come to the forefront and others fade to the back, you will have more voice in that. And that's what she's saying.